What's a podcast? <laughs> it's like radio, but on the internet. I like that. I love Fibber McGee and Molly. <laughs> Thank you for joining us on Longest War. On this episode, we have former Army MP AJ Luna. Thanks for joining us, man. I guess we'll start with where are you from originally? Well, I was born in um, New York, New York. Spent the first couple years of my life in Washington Heights, which is a neighborhood in uptown uh, Manhattan. Then we moved, uh, my family moved to uh, Brooklyn in Starrett City, which is in the East New York section of Brooklyn. And I kind of grew up there. So I was a kid from, uh, from Brooklyn. Um, a lot of very interesting experiences. Before the military, I used to tell people the only island that I went to was Staten Island. <laughs> Long Island too, right? Yeah, yeah. If, if we could afford it, we can go out to Long yeah. Island. Long Island is far. Staten Island was uh, was good back then, but um, you know, just typical. I was very uh, fortunate. You know, I had a lot of love in the household, but not a lot of resources. Come from working. My parents were working class. My mother was a minister. She still does that today. She got back into it with the United Methodist Church. My father was a dental technician. You know, I had very, um, I was very fortunate that I had both parents and um, they they kind of molded me into uh, who I am today. They had a, a lot to do with it. I see it more now because of the type of work that I do. Obviously, for me, uh, when my motivation to join the military was, uh, I uh, was kind of looking around to see where everybody else was around me. And, you know, the big thing was, oh, school and um you know, go to school. That's going to be the answer to all your problems. You'll be at, you'll be able to get out out of there, get a good job, and move to the suburbs. But I kind of felt like, you know what, school's not my thing right now, and I kind of wanted to experience something different. And I probably say that the the, the army was kind of like what awoke the sweet the sleeping giant. You know, I joined uh, some tailing at 18 years old. I did one semester in college in St. John's, and then I said to myself, this is not the path that I kind of want to go. So. I first did active duty for three years in my MOS. I was a 31 Lima, which is cable system installer and maintainer. What year did you join? Uh, 99. 99. So you're pre-9-11. Uh, I got out in 2002, and then I joined the National Guard from 2002 to 2006. But yeah, I started out pre-9-11. When 9-11 happened, I was actually stationed in Korea. Yeah, so what's that like? Because you got family in New York. Well, you're it was crazy. We were in the field, and I was part of a field artillery unit. And I remember that day, I still remember that day because our commander came into our tent. And, you know, there's a 12, 13-hour difference between um, South Korea and New York. So our commander comes into the tent, and the first thing he says is, who here's from New York? So, you know, I raised my hand. I said, oh, I'm, you know, I'm from the city. I'm from Brooklyn. And he come with me right now and, uh, you know, call home. So I said, okay, well, what happened? Everybody else doesn't get to call home? No, they, they told us there that, the Twin Towers had uh, had been attacked, and there was an attack on the country. And, you know, I was, at first, it, it took some time to process it, and they kept us out in the field for an extra week because of all the threat levels were raised all around the bases that all around the world. And, yeah, it was just surreal. Like, you know, I called home. Everybody was okay. My little brother, who went to James Madison High School in Brooklyn, talked to me. He said, yeah, you know, I just saw this big cloud of smoke you know, coming from Manhattan and they send us home for the day and, you know, everybody was okay. But uh, I was leaving Korea in October to move on to Fort Bragg. And I came home and I went to Ground Zero about five weeks later after it happened. The one thing that 
that struck with me was that smell, that stench that was there. I was like, wow, this is, you know, and I got very emotional. So I, I knew it was only a matter of time before something was going to happen. And then, of course, in 2001, we sent troops over to Afghanistan. I wanted to continue to serve. I also had very good, very positive experiences and very negative experiences in my military service. I did three uh, duty stations in three years at Fort Gordon, Korea, and then Fort Bragg. I tried to stay in Korea, but I couldn't convince my sergeant major that it was a, it would cost, probably be more cost efficient for the government just to put my stuff on LMTV and just truck me down to Seoul. Yeah, I right. wanted to go to Yongsang. But no, I got orders to go to Fort Bragg. And I was like, I was kind of, you know, I was like, eh, well, yeah, I'll go check it out. And after that, I was like, you know what? It's time time to go back home. But I still wanted to be a part of it because I, I, I had a very good experience with the military at that time. I loved a lot of things that the military did. For me, it was the easiest job I ever had. And I'm sure you couldn't agree. I mean, uh, some of the things that you see in the military, you just don't know how some people could just mess it up. But it happens. You know, it happens. And I don't know, that's maturity. That's also, you know, everybody's coming from all types of different places when they're in the military. So I went back home. Yeah, I said to myself, I'm going to, I'm gonna, you know, check out the National Guard. And boy, what a move that was. So my first drill, I remember this clear as day because I was 21 going on 22 at the time. And, you know, I got the newsletter from the unit. So it said be there at, you know, 0600. So I'm thinking it's 6 o'clock. Okay, so... Of course, me, you know, squared away Captain America over here has to go and get his freaking uniform pressed and get the shoes, the boots shined, hold up the beret. You got to square that away. I go down there and I get there like at, at 5, 5.45 in the morning and it's like dead quiet. And the, the unit was out of Jamaica, Queens. So the only guy I see there was the master sergeant who was a full timer. He goes, oh, you're early. So like, yeah, the letter said 6 o'clock. Where is everybody? Oh, no, they usually come at 7.30. It's like, Okay. So I'm there just waiting in the car, and then I, I pop out to go smoke a cigarette. It's around 7, 7.30. I'll never forget this. I saw this other guy, BDUs. He looked like he was in his 40s. He had the Luigi mustache going on and all that stuff, and I'm like, all right, let me talk to this guy. So I said, hey, Sarge, what's going on? I'm, I'm Specialist Luna. I'm uh, very happy to be here. Just got off active duty, and he's looking at me like, oh, yeah, yeah, I could tell. And... um I said, yeah, Sarge, so, so how is it like, you know, I mean, you know, how's it like serving here? I mean, how long you been here? He goes, why do you keep calling me Sarge? And I'm like, aren't you a sergeant? No, I'm a specialist just like you. It's like, how old are you? I'm 42. I'm like, what the, what the hell? I'm like, wait, wait, hold on. That's allowed in the guard? I'm like, yeah, man, I retire next year. Oh, my God. So then I knew something was something was up. Retired E4. Something was up, man, because I knew on active duty, they don't let you do that. E4, you're out by 10 years. And, yeah, I just started to learn how it all worked. And, you know, I, I say, all right, this is pretty cool. I met a, I met a lot of like, good people in the unit. But, yeah, total night and day from active duty. If I can go back, which I can't, but if, if I would have had a preference, I would have loved to have served alongside my active duty guys. Because, yeah, just it's, it's a difference between being a, a part-time citizen soldier and a full-time soldier so much different. And when we got called up in um, 2003 to go to Iraq, I think I was 24 at the time, and I, and I got the call when I was taking a, a final. So imagine that. I'm like, oh, geez, what is it? You know, I picked up, and then my sergeant's like, hey, get your shit. We just got orders to go. I'm like, yeah, okay, well, I need to see it first. No, 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 I'm not playing. Get your shit. We got to go. So this is the time where I really saw what everybody was made of. And at that time, you know, I knew it was only a matter of time before we were going to go. 
but I called it National Lampoon's Iraqi Deployment. Cause man, had you already reclassed at that point? To MP? Well, that, that, I'll, I'll tell you the story behind that. So there was no need for a field artillery unit. So we got our training in Fort Dix, New Jersey, which made plenty of sense because it was February and March. It was cold as shit. And then we were going to Kuwait where it was like 60 degrees hotter. And, you know, whoever planned that one out, hey, kudos, man. Not, not like you couldn't send us to NTC so we could train. Yeah, right. You sent us to Fort Dix. So everybody went over there. We got reclassed. And, you know, they gave us all the training. Force protection, which is a fancy word for guard duty, convoy operations. Uh, what's the other one? Rescue, quick reactionary force. So they, they trained us for about nine weeks. We couldn't even put together a battalion to go. We had to get guys from Buffalo, New York to backfill because it was funny. You know, I, I, there were a lot of people there that um, had 17, 18, 19 years in the service. Now, all of a sudden, hey, listen, man, I put in my time. It's, it's time. For, uh, you know, I don't think I can go. And we're like, what the hell do you mean you can't go? Like, this is what, it's like we're getting called up to the, to the majors here. Right. And you got, we got to go. And you would have seen everybody was doing everything. And all of a sudden, the hardships like quadrupled in the unit. You know, to me, I, I just, it, it was so different from active duty. It kind of left like a, a sour taste in my mouth because it's like, okay, well, everybody wants to act like a tough guy. And then when it's time to actually really be the tough guy, right. guys are cutting and running left and right. And, you know, it created a lot of friction in the unit because when we got back, some of these guys would come to reunions. I mean, you know, people would be pissed off like, oh, dude, don't even talk to me. I mean, right. what the hell? We went over there. You you didn't even come. And, and you know, and with National Guardsmen, the whole veteran thing, they just passed a law this year that if you uh, do 20 years of service in the Reserve or National Guard, you get veteran status. You can actually do six years in the Guard or Reserve, never get deployed, never get activated, and you're still not considered a veteran. Right. And these guys, believe me, they'll tell you they'll ram- they're Rambo. Which, yeah. to me, it's like, you know, I, I met some real tough FO, SOBs out there. I had a guy named Marvin Middleton. God bless him. He was 50 years old. We had another guy, Sergeant Virouette. He was in Vietnam, and when he went to Iraq, he was 56. I mean, these guys love to serve. That That's that's a lot different than the guys that did 19 years in the Guard, and now they're getting called up, and all of a sudden, oh, listen, I got a drug problem. Or, listen, I got a hardship. Yeah. Oh, listen, we didn't really think you were going to call us up. You know, that has to be some way. But I will say that, you know, a lot of people would think that a lot of enlisted were trying to get out of it or trying to sham their way out of it. So a lot of uh, um, senior enlisted yeah. and a lot of officers who look you in the eye and say, oh, well, you know, I've already done 19, 20 years, man. I don't, I don't think it's my time to go yet. I'm like, what the fuck you mean? Yeah. This is your last chance to Yo, go. Yeah, dude, the, this is the hurrah, man. We'll yeah. Just, let's get the hell on the plane and do what we got to do. But it was the young, dumb, 22, 23, 24-year-olds like, 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 that were like, itching to go. Like yours truly. And then yeah. there were some people that, again, we were very fortunate that we had a variety of experiences in the unit. We had a lot of cops, a lot of firefighters, EMTs, sanitation workers. So we brought a lot to the, to the table as far as the kind of mission that we had to do. But, I mean, it was under a lot of stress. You know, our commander got relieved our first sergeant got relieved the shit was a mess and that that's when i said yeah national lampoon's iraqi deployment what was the mission we were second wave operation iraqi freedom 2 the mission was we were supposed we were part of the 95th mp battalion at a biop we were in camp scania so the usual force protection we did the 30 vehicle convoys i was a gunner a team chief a driver that was basically it but i i think that uh when everybody got the call and they kind of saw what it was. You know, a lot of people chose to back out. And I got to be honest, it was stressful because of the work environment. 
it's something that you know it, it was an experience that i'll never obviously no you're never going to forget because when you're out there you're not thinking you know about um any kind of events in your life you're just trying to get through day by day sure but we were very fortunate that we um only well we lost one person but it wasn't because of enemy action there was a couple of engagements but nothing that you know nobody could not handle we had a couple guys that were injured but one person died in a rollover accident i think that person he passed away he was actually from brooklyn too and this guy was like you know a guy who definitely loved to serve name was joseph otto benke his son went to operation iraqi freedom one and he came back and his father goes in part two dies in a roller accident december 5th that's one that's probably my most depressing time is early december because i spoke to him that night before when we went out and we were talking about when we get back home and we got to do this and got to do that and at that time some people were moving that were uh, previously deployed at west point they couldn't keep them on board till two years so i was going to get a whole new team chief and i was asking him if i could switch over to his team because i liked the guy I trusted the guy and you know i could work well with him but yeah he went out that night and you know my command there sorry to say this on the record but he didn't have the balls to say hey let's let's take a step back and try and we switch right from day missions to night missions now mind you you know how it is nick so you work you're putting in 16 17 18 hour days right, right? i'm 24 years old and that's going to kick my ass sure so imagine what it does to three 40 year olds in, in a truck you don't even get enough time to recover and i think seriously i i should probably be like red bull's biggest sponsor i drank so much fucking oh, yeah. red bull out there just to stay awake that yeah i'm paying for it now but you know you took everything that you could seriously out there and then you see some people that were out there and think that was a, it was a normal deployment or something like oh here i'm here on vacation just to check out iraq no man you're not there to check out iraq we're at war like shit's gonna happen you know so um, do you remember what happened with the rollover like well was it, it was a night mission it was a night mission i think uh there's so several accounts but obviously the people that were involved in it uh, they never talked to me directly but what i heard was just in a quick moment the driver passed out he was probably exhausted they hit a barricade and the vehicle rolled over. And he was the gunner. So it launched him out the turret, killed him on impact, vehicle rolled over twice. And yeah, you know, I, I tried to have good control of emotions. I think those next two days, I cried like a freaking whatever you sure. want to fill in the blank. Like that, I was a mess. In fact, I was such a mess that my, my platoon sergeant said, take a day off. Like you need to take a day off. Like I couldn't believe it. I was like, how far along in the tour was this? We left in april so i would probably say maybe a little more than halfway through so it's tough man so what what happened to the other two dudes that were in the the vehicle like what did they do with those guys because i'm sure the driver particularly was oh yeah well he was beaten he beat was, himself up he was, you know? yeah he was he was beside himself they got they got a couple of injuries but uh yeah i mean you know did they send them back i think the driver the driver did go back the team chief stayed but you could tell man it was one of those like fuck like damn if i can go back and you know if i can go back and just change it but i, I again but that, that's on the leadership again obviously. i mean i had the saying that uh hopefully one day i'll, I'll coin but uh if leadership is a word if you take the p and replace it with a t that's what you have sometimes yeah shit absolutely and i get the fact you know i get the whole command there i'm up and coming and i gotta do this but sometimes you gotta have the balls to stick up for your guys and say look sir my guys are not they're not going to be at 100%. They're not going to be mission effective. They're not going to be ready to take this on. 
I tell you, the best time of that deployment was when they took us over, when they gave us to, to this unit in Rhode Island. Man, set schedule. You knew when you were going, two on, one off. Dude, it's like it breathed a fresh air in all of us. Yeah. I'm like, fuck, I wish I would have gotten to play with you guys. Right. You know, but th- that, that was that particular unit and that particular leadership. And again, just a very, very surreal thing. So hopefully if I ever have to make a movie about it, and it could be a comedy. But I mean, a lot of people don't know like the seriousness of it. Also, you really get to see true people's true colors when you get deployed. I mean, you see who's about what. You see who really has your back. You see who really wants to go out there and do the mission. You see a lot of carelessness. You see a lot of egos. You see people, especially, you know, people that talk shit in the tents. And they'll call back home like, yeah, it's fucking horrible over here. You know, fucking mortars all the time. And, uh, you know, I, I I don't know how I'm going to make it through. I'm like, dude, relax. You fucking watch the, the the internet cafe. Yeah. I should get you a combat internet badge. All right. Get the fuck out of here. What are you talking about that, you know, you're out there doing shit. You're, you're in a freaking, you're in a tent. Everybody's girlfriend thinks they're fucking. Oh, my God. Audie I mean, Murphy with just medals pinned yeah. on their chest. Yeah. Seriously. And you're right next to it. I'm like, dude. You're an asshole. Why yeah. are you saying this? And you me? know I can hear you. Like, yeah, <laughs> like I, I'm like, holy shit, dude. At least just just call your your family and tell them you're okay, and then hang up and go go back to browsing the web. But don't go there yeah. and, and make a story. And that's the thing. I mean, a lot of people. What's the good word that I can use? Uh, exuded or um, embellished their service. Sure, and, that happens all the time. End of the day, you know. End of the day, we lost somebody. And I lost three people that I know that, that went over there. So for all the stories and all the crap, it really doesn't matter because those families now don't have their loved ones. Right. And, um, you know, you just got to be, I don't know. It's, I know when I, went, when I came back from overseas, it definitely helped me gain a lot more perspective on things. And it just taught me that there's a lot of trivial bullshit that people care about that doesn't matter. You know, you go into a situation where it's just you and your soldiers, and it's life or death. And literally, you can be gone. I mean, we had a, we had a guy from the Florida National Guard that we, uh, the unit that we were replacing, one day left in country, and they they shot a mortar around into the Anaconda PX. One day left in country. Yeah. So it's random. It's totally so you, random. You, you, you try to make sense of it. You try to plan for it. You try to understand it, but. When when it's it's your time to clock out, it's your time to clock out, and that's yeah, what I said to that's, people. That's the scariest part of all of it, right? Is like no amount of tactical training or prowess in the world can prevent that mortar from hitting close to you when you're walking to the shitter. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you could be coming back from the shower, going to get something to eat. Like there's just nothing you can do about it. There's no you can't train for it. You can't. It's so random, man. Like it's. Um, and the shittiest part of it is, too, we, we had one of that with our unit, man. Like, we had been there for, like, nine months, and a kid, had, he had come in and only been there for, like, three days and was killed. And it's just like, fuck. Like, yeah, bro, you just don't like, understand. We've been here this whole time, and I'm okay. And, like, this kid was here three days, and a rocket hit his tent and kills him. Like, you're just like, holy shit. Like, it, it really puts into perspective, like, how nothing is guaranteed. Like, tomorrow is not guaranteed to anybody. But let's change the pace a little bit. So Baghdad ain't Brooklyn. No. <laughs> right? Like, it's 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 culture shock, you, you right? Can, yeah, well, you kind of wish you might. You, you, I could probably benefit from having a Humvee and a 50 cal in Brooklyn. Yeah, right. But uh, no, no, what, definitely what was not. The, so you had, like, going out on the road, man, you had pr- plenty of, not necessarily, like, 
individual interaction, but you saw the culture, you saw the lifestyle people were living. What was the weirdest thing you saw over there? Or like what thing struck you? Like for me in Afghanistan, we were driving down these dirt roads and I saw this goat and it had like a leather pouch on its belly. And I asked our turp, I was like, yo man, what is that, what is that thing around the goat? And they were like, oh yo, it's a bag. So like, uh, cause otherwise the kids will just go up and drink straight out of the goat. So they want to save the milk. Otherwise the kids will take all of it. So they got to like put these bags, leather bags around the goat's tits so they can't drink it. It's like, I was like, this is super weird, man. All right, I'm like in the twilight zone now. Well, it was, it was a shock to us because some of the, the abject poverty that's in that country. I mean, it's different than America poor. Yeah, man. I mean, America poor, it's really not that bad. I mean, it's not, it's not great, but you know, when, when you literally say they got a hut, they literally got a hut. And besides Baghdad, not too many places in that country is really well, not like Kuwait. You know, and Kuwait. Kuwait's beautiful. Kuwait, yeah. we know Everybody drives a Mercedes. Like, and UAE and Dubai. Um, oil money. And, yeah. It's totally different, man. I mean, that that abject poverty to me was just like something that really hit home. Like, man, these guys can't even change this situation. Because there's not like, at least in America. I mean, America, you can be very poor. You can be in very tough times. Like, you can be homeless, need a shelter. There's no shelters in Iraq no, or Afghanistan. No, you got the shelter. You're, the shelter is the, the ditch on the sidewalk, yeah. right? Like living make on the your street. Own shelter. Yeah. I mean, and you literally have zero possessions. No, nah, nothing. Nothing Nothing that really gives you any type of good quality of life. And you just don't know what's out there. I mean, you know, we, we refer to them as hajis, but I mean, some of those hajis hustled. They would sell you, you know, those $5, two movies on one thing. You know, I mean, they would be out there. Hustling, you know, trying to swear to, make to a God, they got yeah. a real Rolex. They're trying to sell you for yeah. twenty five dollars. Yeah, and then the you know the the line on the R is missing, and the Breitling, the Folex. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but that that's how it is. That that's just just how it is. I the mean, one cool thing you go to those bazaars, man. And I remember there was this movie. Um, uh, what was it? It was about the Marshall Matthew McConaughey was in. It was about the Marshall football team when their plane crashed and they took over. I think it was called We Are Marshall, and uh. I was talking to my girlfriend. I was like, yeah, I just watched that movie, We Are Marshall. And she was like, was it good? I was like, yeah, it was good. She was like, that didn't come out in theaters for like three more weeks. <laughs> yeah, but we well, had those Chinese bootlegs, man. No, nah, so we like, had access, man. And yeah. especially the software. Like you get the whole Adobe suite on for like 10 bucks. Yeah. It's crazy. It now was they're, nuts. And they love the water. Al Qaeda's probably tracking your computer now though, but. No, no, but I got that. rid of it. You know, I gave it to the, the, the other guy in my unit, but uh, they used to love the barter <laughs> with us too. We get care packages with like soap and stuff. So we go down, hey, we take them a bar of soap. Listen, give me a discount on the DVDs. We were the only ones that would do that. And how did you know the unit was from New York? Because one of my guys in my unit started bootlegging CDs. And then he was pissed off when he had competition outside the gate. You know you're from New York when you said bootleg CDs. This big ass box, he pulls it out. I'm like, dude, that's the same stuff I'll see in Jamaica. I'm like, yeah, man. I told my cousin to, to get me some. I'm trying to sell CDs out to the guys here. But you know they sell CDs out in the, in, outside the wire, right? Well, hey, they need a lot of little competition too. Always that street entrepreneur, man. So, but like I said, I, I wouldn't take back the experience. So you, now you're married and you have two beautiful daughters. You were 25 then, so you weren't, I don't know if you were seen. No, I was you, uh, you very fortunate yet, right? that I wasn't in any serious Can you imagine, like, it, it, it's tough, with, man. A, with a wife and dependents going over there? I couldn't do it. I, I think it, that, that'd break me. Especially the relationship's rocky. Oh, yeah. Because you hear stories like, you know, guy would make a couple thousand dollars over there and then they come back, the bank account's cleaned out. Somebody else was taking care of the wife while they were deployed. 
I don't know if I would have had the mental toughness to deal with that kind of stuff. So, I mean, like I said, I, I, I was a college kid. I was messing around, but nothing, nothing, uh, nothing too serious, nothing committed. You know, I, that, everything happened after I got back. And I kind of, I kind of liked the, the fact that it was like that. Even in, on active duty before, you know, you would see people they really hurting for doing a year two in Korea. And I was like, shit, keep me here for another six months to a year. I'll stay. I'm a single guy. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I got no family, you know, and I wanna, I wanna experience more stuff. I got yeah. to go out to Hong Kong. I wanted to go to Australia if I had the chance, you know. Yeah, it's totally different. My first tour, I was single, man. So like, I didn't give a shot. I re-enlisted during that tour in Afghanistan. I was like, oh yeah, I can do this forever. Hey, got the bonus. Then man. I come Tax back, free. get married, have a kid. Then go on the second tour. I was like, I can't do this no it's more. It's tough, man. man. It's tough, especially if you got your kids. Like that's probably the thing that that keeps me going and, and that motivates me. You know, you have, a, especially if somebody's born while you're deployed. And you can't be there for uh, the first few moments of their life. It's you know, and it just goes to show the kind of sacrifices that a lot of our service members make. You know, a lot of people here won't have to ever experience that. Right. I mean, people will you know bitch about somebody going to a conference in Orlando for a couple of days. Sure. And you're asking people to go there for a year, do your job, and then come back like everything else is normal. Yeah. Like you know, it wasn't it wasn't super common, but it was common enough that everyone at least like you know a few degrees of separation knows a story of a guy who you know his wife had their baby and before he'd go home on leave he was killed like never got to even meet his kid yeah you know yeah yeah and that that's why you say you, you never know what what life has in store but again as far i'm very proud that you know i had a chance to be a part of that i don't want the, my military experience to define me as the whole it is a, a big part of my life but you know, looking back at it now and seeing what other people had to go through in that situation, it like I said, it gives you a whole lot of perspective on, you know, what we have going on here today. Yeah, it makes you a lot more thankful. Very thankful you... because, you know what, I mean, yeah, we got our problems, we got our issues, but compared to the rest of the world, compared to that region of the world, dude, it's like night and day, man. Yeah. You know, a lot of things that we, you know, I, it, it happened to me when I went back to school. I mean, I didn't take it seriously after I came back from active duty. I was still in that phase, like, what the hell do I want to do with my life? My parents were still harping on the school thing. I chose a affordable public institution rather than an expensive private institution because, you know, I, I did my three years. I had my GI Bill, and I said, look, I really I want to get the education, but at the same time, I don't want to drown in debt like my friends from high school. And I think now I'm m mature. I have some experience. I can get out there and kick some ass and, you know, if, if somebody's willing to give me a shot. So we still did the school thing, but I really didn't take it seriously until I get, came back from Iraq. That's when I really started seeing things that normally wouldn't bother me. Like, you know, I would see students complain about different things. And I, I had the same thing, too, because I worked for the Veterans Affairs Office at Brooklyn College. I wasn't known as AJ the television and radio student. I was known as AJ the vet guy. Right. So I had a lot of support when I came back, which is a lot different from most other people. They were already expecting me back in my... My uh, my boss, who she's great and she's a veterans dependent, and she she dealt with a lot of that. You know, she told me, "Hey, go get counseling, go go this, go do that," and I I listened to her. You know, I didn't I didn't want to argue with her, say, "Yeah, yeah, no, I'm good, I didn't need it." No, no, let me let me go. She she was very flexible and she worked with me, but um, you know, just some of the stuff that you would see and what people would complain about and then what they would ask you, you're like, Jesus Christ, super like, that's, trivial. That's not important, man. Right? Like, somebody was complaining. I think it was like two thousand and and five and i went to summer school and it was a speech class and i had somebody there a younger guy and this guy is bitching about 
yeah, you know, my dad, he couldn't buy me a 2005 BMW. He got me a 2004. And I'm like, you're fucking worried about that, dude? You're fucking worried about getting a... Life must be rough. Wow, bro. I said, there. And then, and then he goes, oh, you seem like a cool guy, man. You're a little older. Like, so what's your story? I, said, I just came back from Iraq. Oh, oh, man. Well, thank you. I'm like, yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, how do you feel about that? That's something we talk about at events a lot when someone says, oh, thank you. Sometimes I accidentally say you're welcome because it's like a knee-jerk reaction to someone saying thank you. But you know, um, me, there's me, like a campaign where the know, younger vets don't want to be thanked for their service. Me, me personally, because everybody says it to you in a different way. So right. if it's thank you because I appreciate what you did and, you know, blah, 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 blah. You know, no problem. You know, I, I never say you're welcome. I'll say, you know, I'll say not a problem or, or I'll say, oh, thank you for I appreciate that. When it's a thank you that, oh, thank you that you had to go and I didn't have to go because I didn't have the balls to go, that's kind of kind of different. Yeah. Right. You know, and that's what I felt college kids were doing. Like, oh, well, yeah, you know, you, shit, you had to go. Thank God you went. <laughs> shit, I didn't want to go. Right. But uh, everybody, everybody is different. And, and again, you know, with, with that experience, you kind of get to see where people's values are at, you know, what they appreciate, what they hold, they covered as, as honorable. I would say for the most part, the reception was, was positive. And... You know, there, there was some negativity, but I tell veterans all the time, don't look for that. It's out there. Just don't look for it. Don't look for it. Look, if the guy says to you, oh, you're a piece of shit, you joined the military, you're a fucking scumbag, blah, 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 blah. Listen, great. That's, that's wonderful. That's beautiful. I'm glad I was able to defend your right to say that. Thank you very much. <laughs> right. Let's move on because, you know, I want to focus on other things and you focus on what you have to focus on. And then also to veterans, don't go looking for the the you know like the pat on the back or the thanks and then a day it doesn't matter as if it doesn't affect your family or the people you care about or other veterans that that you're with it's not gonna matter who who says thank you for your service a lot of companies say thank you for your service but they're not hiring veterans yeah so or if they are it's for seven dollar an hour job and and there's there there's a lot of things to do i'm glad you brought that up because again in my line of work as the advocate for our county veteran services and our and our veterans, you have to be able to be smart enough to toe those lines, but also build those relationships that can benefit your veterans. And at the end of the day, I find that a lot of people get stuck more on a negative, and it's easy. The media does it. That's how they make a living. If they were to sell you a story saying something positive, they would really and they put it in the back of the of the lineup. They do something, but. Negative sells. That's yeah. just the way the society is. So if it bleeds, you know, it leads. It bleeds, it leads. So if you have you have an organization like TMC, and I'm a big proponent. I've studied veteran nonprofits. There's over 7,800 veteran nonprofits in this country. Most of them are shit. Ridiculous. And then uh, last year, Charity Navigator came out. You know, because people are thinking, you know, people don't care. People blah blah blah. It's not necessarily true because the American public gave 2.5 billion dollars for veteran causes. Now. That doesn't include municipal, state, local, federal programs, corporations. So now the question becomes, it's not that the resources are not there, but how are the resources being utilized? Right. They're not and being then, put in the right hands. And you can't, tell, you, can't, you can't tell a veteran who's getting out the service and he sees all these services out there that is, that's not confusing his shit. And who do you trust? Who do you know? Because I'm in a position where I have to give everybody... I have to give everybody um, a chance or at least hear them out because I'm a public official. But with that being said, I know that if I if I have like a TMC, if I have a good organization, I'm going to try to milk that as much as I can and, and expose more veterans to that. Right. You know, why wouldn't you do that? It's the organizations that are there for the wrong reasons. And and again, you know, 
veterans population is not the easiest to work with. But with that being said, veterans understand a certain type of culture. And if you bullshit them, they pick it up quick. And that's why I tell people like, you know what? Just do what you say. Or at least give a wholehearted effort. A veteran will understand effort. If you can't come to the to positive outcome, just do what you say. Don't promise me this, 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 and that. And it doesn't happen. Right. And veterans, they get discouraged. And what happens is a lot of veterans get out and you have a lot of these nonprofits that, that pop up. We should make a film about this, right? <laughs> I right? think you I, are. You know, a lot of people don't understand the intricacies, but a lot of those organizations make money off just veterans. Wounded Warrior Project is a big one. And not to say that they haven't done positive things in the community, but they got too big for their own good. Yeah. And when you make, when you're a marketing behemoth and you don't have programs to, to accompany that funding, it becomes a problem because most people that I've encountered, you know, maybe New York City is different, but northern New Jersey, a lot of World War II veterans are from there. We have 37,000 veterans. There's a connection with the community. Yeah. So a lot of people like to give, and this is a whole different topic of conversation, but when they give to an organization, their expectation is that the organization is going out there kicking ass and really helping out. And sometimes, again, if I'm not there actually handing you the check and seeing what you're doing with the money, it's a whole different story. I feel veterans get caught in the middle of that. Yeah. Because there's so much stuff. I mean, just I just thought of like two or three spinoffs off of Mission Continues. Mission accomplished, mission this, mission that. Right. And it's all spinoffs and it's all somebody, it's either a vet or somebody else who gets a bright idea and says, Oh, I got this great program to help our vets. You know, let's let's start the five oh one C three. Let's just go out there. So there's so much stuff out there. And it and don't get me wrong, there's there's good organizations out there, but there's also a lot of bad ones. Mm -hmm. And the thing is there's so much clutter in the space. So I'm like the declutterer. I, I have to go through all this stuff and make sure I find different organizations that have niches, but that can really positively impact veterans. Yeah. You know, and I'm, I don't want to put a plug in for TMC, but TMC no, it's fine. has the, they're a very, they're service oriented, they're a niche, and I also look at it as career development, professional opportunity. Absolutely. What other organization, you know, trains you, makes you do a service project, and you can volunteer with a nonprofit for 20 hours? And I tell veterans that are going to school on a GI Bill, you'd be stupid not to do this. I say the same thing. Seriously, really like do. you'd be stupid not to do this because reality is if people don't know who you are, you can come up and say you're a veteran all you want. But if they don't know Lauren, if they don't know Nick, if they don't know Brian, it's not going to matter at the end of the day. So you have yeah. to create those opportunities. It's all about relationship so people, building. And right. you, I think you mastered, you were talking about decluttering in the veteran space. In our last podcast, Bryant, who's worked for you in the past, kind of sang your praises. And he, he told us that you ended homelessness, veteran homelessness in Bergen County. Well, Can you say, well, clarify that for me, but then tell us if you could pass that on. Like if, if anyone, if any veteran service providers listening to this podcast right now, what would be the one take home point that you would say, yo, man, this is the one thing you need to do to have success? You know, or to be honest and to, to, to say, you know, do what you say you're going to do. Like you said, if you say you're well, going to do it, do it. We'll talk about the political and then I get, you know, I'll keep it 100% real with my fellow vets. So the political the political is this. They sign on to a mayor's challenge to end veteran homelessness. You guys were aware of that in 2015, right? And it wasn't just me. My office had a big part to do with it, but we also had a lot of good partners. And which is crucial. Which is I mean, you have to have strategic partners to pull this off. You can't just do it by yourself. No. Mm -mm. My office has four full-time staff, including myself, and three interns at the time. So, you know, we were getting out there, but nowhere and nowhere near the budget. So what do we do? We partner with the person who ran the shelter, who also happens to be a supporter of veterans. 
First thing she did was give veterans preference in the county. You're a veteran. You go on a waiting list. You're going to get bumped up. All right. That's that's the first part. Second thing that we did, the work study program. We got a part-time vet to be in the shelter to identify all those veterans because the shelter has to shelter people. Whether or not they get to their needs is whenever they can. If I got a vet who also understands vets in there, we're not going to wait for day 26. We're going to wait. We're going to day one. Hey, buddy, you're a vet. Great. You have proof of your service. No, no problem. We'll go get it. Once we find it, we start developing your plan. What's your situation? What's your mental health situation? What kind of income do you have? Do you have the potential to be employed? Where have you lived before? What's your family situation? All that information we gather and then we develop the plan. Now, we're working with the SSVF providers, which is Supportive Services Veterans and Families. We had four in the county. So with those four, it's accountability, and it's also making the cases easier for them. So if I go to you and you're an SSVF provider, and I say, Nick, I got homeless vets. I know you have funding to house them. Let me start the process and the cases for you. Tell me what you need. We'll start the filing office. I'll just hand it over to you. I'm giving you the ball, and I just need you to do what you, what you need to do. Oh, and by the way, we got a relationship with landlords. So it's not like you're going to have to waste a million hours looking for an apartment. We have affordable apartments. Yeah. So I'll give you those relationships as long as you house the guy. So we've gotten so good at doing this since 2015. We've housed 215 veterans. And it's again, incredible. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it is just you got to know where the resources are, who has the resources, the eligibility for the resources. You got to be creative and you got to start the relationships with landlords. Some landlords will say, look, I don't want to fucking deal with it. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Some landlords will say, what, veteran? Yeah, let, let, let's see what we can do. You tell somebody, oh, he has a HUD badge voucher. They'll say, what the hell is that? But you tell somebody, no, it's a section, section 8 voucher for veterans. Ah, yeah. Yeah, we're familiar with Section 8. Of course you are. I know you are. But we're going to make it easy for you. We're going to make it easy so that all you have to do is just put this guy up or put this family up. And that's it. So we did that on a massive scale. And we continue to do that. And again, the other counties, I can only speak for myself. But it all depends on what the leadership is at the county. Now, you're from northern New Jersey and central New Jersey, so you know how the politics work up there. But again, it starts with the leadership. If my county executive didn't care and didn't have family in the military, he'd still be a great guy. But he cares about that particular issue because he had a brother in Vietnam and he had he had uh, uh, World War II. His father served in World War II. So for him, he gets it. Now, he might not know how to do it, but that's why he hired me. That's what a lot of people don't understand, too, is like may- <laughs> mayors are important, but county execs have and, a lot but, but, of power. But see, when you say that, not only are they important, but every elected official can be important. Because now, what we're doing right now is we're creating momentum. We're creating an environment that if we bring up to you the conversation in a council meeting and say, hey, have you thought about veteran housing and, and the elected officials say, oh, well, but, but wait a minute, wait a minute. Didn't you just say the other day that, you know, you want to support veterans? What better way to support veterans than to build veteran housing? Right. Get them off the streets. Let's get them. All, let's make it's it so that we're not rea- yeah. reactive to the problem and we're proactive. Right. So there, there is power, but the, the real power is in managing the relationships. Sure. Now, the county executive, when he was the mayor of Paramus, he started a veteran housing build. Six townhomes for disabled vets. Two bed, one and a half bath with an elevator, and that went to six service-connected disabled vets. We have 70 towns in my county. If each town does a little, listen, this is never going to be an issue, and it's not an issue now. Right. But you have to put that political pressure on elected officials. They've all got to carry their weight. 
And they can do it because now we've had it in Paramus. We've had it in Northvale. We've had it in Emerson. We had it in uh, Woodridge helped us out. So now what are you going to tell us? Oh, no, it can't be done. Really? We just did it in four towns. Right. In fact, we got Washington Township coming up and we got Allendale coming up. So, you know, what's the problem? What What's going to be the excuse to say why we can't get this done for our vets? And that's where I want to be. I want to be in that position where we have the leverage. We can start that conversation. It's political suicide right now in the county to, to not support vets. But if you can't support them that way, then, you know, I think that uh, that as we as, as we continue to, to move forward, you're going to see a lot more opportunities. But I, we're getting to the point where we can at least start that conversation. Yeah. Now, so I guess the gist of what you're getting at is you don't need one person to do everything. You can't. It's impossible. But if everybody does just a little you bit. You got to find the strategic partners that give a shit, that care. You got to find a reason to keep people engaged. We have we have over 40 service providers that we have part of this stakeholders group. So what we do is every three months, we meet somewhere and we invite everybody who says that they provide a service for veterans. And I'll have people raise their hand. Who here does homeless prevention for veterans? Who here does job training? Who here does, what, what else you got? Mental health. Oh, we got an equine therapy program. Okay. Let's hear you out. Let's let let's see what's going on. But, you know, I, I work in constituent services. So if I if I can't do it, I need to be able to provide an answer to somebody who can do it. Right. And as far as the housing, to get back to that, Emerson was a very interesting project because you have a lot of moving parts. The American Legion donated the land. You got the Housing Authority of Bergen County. You got the Housing Development Corporation. They build the property. They did all the construction, yada, yada, yada. But that's it. That's all they do. So we were the ones that proposed to them, say, look, we have a nonprofit, and anytime there's a homeless vet, they furnish their place. Because it's not like you're going to ask a guy who's on Social Security Disability who makes $900 a month. You got him a voucher. You got him a place. You know he needs to sleep somewhere. Right. He's probably going to need some food. Might need some furniture. So this organization came about. And what this organization did was we mapped it out. We planned it. We said, look, we got a huge project here. Let's reach out to the community and see if anybody wants to support furnishing these places. Court Furniture came up with the furniture. Artwork was donated. Samsung, that they have a, a, a office in Ridgefield Park. They donated TVs. The Elks, the National Elks, they're based out of Lynnhurst, but the National Elks Foundation, they're doing beds and welcome home kits. Nice. So, I mean, brother, besides, you know, clothes and food, I mean, I'm trying to think what else we can get these guys. Yeah. But when the project happens, it's going to be phenomenal. Now, it's going to do one of two things. It's going to be a real feel good because we solved the problem. We help veterans get better housing, but it's going to show what can happen when the government and members of the community and organizations come together and they all pitch in. I mean, you're going to see like life changing stuff. And if you yeah. can ask Brian, he saw one of us that off there. This guy almost cried and the place was empty. So imagine when he walks into his brand new place with all the bells and whistles. And that's how you properly thank a veteran. That's how you do it. Yeah. So we're hoping that with this event, we can use that to leverage other towns to do the same thing for our veterans. It's awesome, man. I just heard that as a perfect outro. Yeah. But you nailed it. That's good. Anything else you want to add? Check out Bergen County Veteran Services on Facebook. We're always posting stuff on there about what we do in the community. But uh, I'm looking forward to it. And I'm glad that uh, we got Brian as our fellow because he's been doing a lot as far as organizing things. He's been a tremendous help and can't wait till we, uh, we can get it done. Brother, it's... It's the reason why we do what we do. Yeah. All right, man. 
Well, thanks so much for joining us today, dude. We really appreciate you guys coming down, making the drive. Thank you for having us, man. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Longest War. If you like what you heard, please be sure to subscribe, like, and rate us on iTunes, Blueberry, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcasting app.